At any given hour of the day, if you surf enough TV channels, you are bound to come across an infomercial selling a beauty product, something that promises remarkable results, something that has stunning before and after testimonies, and usually a gorgeous celebrity who's telling you how to banish wrinkles, erase age spots, tighten loose skin, eliminate dark circles under the eyes, volumize your thin hair, and overall reverse those dreadful effects of aging. If you feel at this point like I've watched too many of those infomercials that I can recite all that, that may be a problem, but no. Survey last year of, of some 2,000 Americans found that on average men spend almost $3,000 a year on their $3,000 a year on their appearance, women about 3,800. So the disparity, guys, is really not all that much there, as much as you we might have thought. We live in a culture that quite literally worships youthful beauty. It has become idolatrous in our culture, which is why the, the quest for matching beauty as the world defines it has become an idol for millions of people. Uh, being the right size, wearing the right fashions, having the, the hair and face of a model have become an endless pursuit for many and the exasperation of many as well. The Bible is neither silent nor condemning on the subject of beauty. In fact, you could go to the book of Song of Solomon and see there the, the book that celebrates marital love, the husband praising the beauty of his wife. Song of Solomon 4.1 says, Behold, you are beautiful, my love. Behold, you are beautiful. But the Word of God also sounds a caution, a, a warning about beauty. Proverbs 31.30 says, Charm is deceitful. And beauty is vain, but a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. We're going to spend our time this morning thinking about that verse and some of the implications of that verse and what it means, Proverbs 31.30. Proverbs 31 is kind of a go-to chapter on Mother's Day because of its speaking of that excellent wife, of a, of a godly wife and mother and celebrating the virtues that she exhibits. Well, we will stick pretty much on verse 30 this morning. Talking just a little bit here at the beginning about beauty and charm, as the writer does here in Proverbs, um, but primarily looking at the last part of that verse, a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. It is an exhortation for all of us, even though in this context it's speaking particularly to this wife, to this mother. It is clear throughout Scripture that as believers, we are all called to understand the fear of God. Proverbs 31.30 presents two ideas in diametric opposition to each other, as the Proverbs often do, giving you one side and then the other. Charm is deceitful and beauty is vain, but a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. Both, both sides here. It starts with the warning about charm and beauty. Not saying that either of them are bad in and of themselves. As a matter of fact, the Hebrew word for charm can mean favor or grace, very same word that is used in Genesis chapter 6, verse 8, where it says, Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. That same word, Hebrew word for charm, is that favor there in Genesis 6, 8. But there's a warning here in Proverbs 31, 30, where it says that charm can be deceitful. Sometimes a person may seem charming, may seem gracious, may uh, on the surface, at least, show those sorts of qualities and yet be hiding ulterior motives. Hard as it may seem to believe, right? We can be manipulative. We can be smiling and charmful on the outside when inside we're, our thoughts are elsewhere, less than kind, to, to say the least. 
the sinful tempter in Proverbs is sometimes described as having smooth words. Again, it, it, there's an appeal, there's a certain charm, and, and yet there is a heart that is not aligned with those words and that charm. And there may be hidden motives that explain that charming behavior. And as for beauty, the, the Hebrew word that's used there in verse 30 to describe that, where it says beauty is vain, should be familiar to you. If you think back to the book of Ecclesiastes, it is that Hebrew word, hebel. It's not necessarily bad. It's not, when we say vain, we, we pretty much automatically classify that as a negative term. The term itself really means fleeting. It's here for a time and then it's gone. So it's vain if you're going to put your hope in it because it's not lasting. But it's the idea of fleeting. That's why all of the beauty products call themselves age-defying or restoring that youthful look because we're, we get to a certain age and we're, we're trying to, to turn back the clock, if you can, in some way. We're trying to restore something. And we all know that the older you get, the, the harder it is to achieve that cultural definition of what external beauty looks like. Some do better than others, but I would dare say that all of us who've reached middle or latter years, uh, if we looked at a picture of ourselves from 15 years ago or so, would, would sigh just a little bit and long for maybe it's more hair or less weight or something, less wrinkles, um, but something along the way, because beauty is fleeting. So this passage in Proverbs that teaches all about a wife and mother who displays excellence in terms of godly virtues also has this warning. And that is that society may fawn over a woman who appears to be elegant in charm, beautiful to the eyes, and she may well be charming and, and beautiful. But if you stake your judgment on how excellent she is, in terms of a biblical description here, if you're going to decide how praiseworthy she is based primarily on those two virtues, then the warning of Scripture is that the one may be deceptive and the other certainly will give way over time. The other is not lasting. Proverbs 31.30 says, if you are looking to identify a woman who is worthy of honor, if you are looking to identify one who is an example to other women, to younger women, if you're looking for one who is to be spoken of well by her family, who's praiseworthy, then you're looking for a woman who fears the Lord. And that's where I want to spend our time this morning, is talking about the, the fear of the Lord, as it says it here in Proverbs 31.30. What does it mean to fear the Lord? Because this is clearly an exhortation for all of us who are walking with Jesus Christ. And we're going to go about this not so much in a... There's not a couple of... Um, sort of this is what the fear of the Lord actually specifically looks like, as much as how we respond to God and learn what the fear of the Lord is by seeing God, by knowing God better. That's really what Scripture shows us when it talks about the fear of the Lord. It is a response to our understanding of who God is. So Proverbs 31 is describing this woman who applies wisdom and compassion to others. She is prudent. She is hardworking. She's careful about what she says. She strives to be faithful in all things. But the capstone of the passage, the, the summary statement that ties it all together and that ultimately is the, the thing that says this is, this is ultimately why she is praiseworthy, is that conclusion in verse 30. It is because she fears the Lord. We tend to judge ourselves and others by horizontal relationships. We get concerned about what you think of me, 
how I look, how I come across in this situation, how I'm functioning as a dad, at least in, in terms of how you're looking at me and, and thinking. And moms, I know there are times when your, your kids act up and you are out in public, maybe you're at church or you're at some other public place, and at least at some point one of the thoughts that crosses your mind is, what are people thinking of me right now? I feel like a failure because my little child is you know, racing out the door and into the parking lot and into the glorious unknown. Um, I feel like that they're all thinking these things about me. Well, the thing is the Bible focuses primarily on our relationship to the Lord. The, the relationships with one another are important. We have testimonies that we, we hold out in front of others, and how we live our lives is important. But primarily, Scripture wants us to see ourselves in our relationship to the Lord, worshiping and honoring Him. It's His place in our lives and our submission to Him that ultimately drives the rest. Your life may not always look neat and together. Your kids may not be perfectly dressed or acting like little saints. But do you fear the Lord? Is that what grips your heart? And that's what I want to talk about this morning because that's what the writer of Proverbs, that's what God's Word says here. Again, this is by no means restricted to wives, mothers, women in general. This is for all who profess faith in Jesus Christ. We should understand the fear of the Lord. We should be growing in an understanding of what that is, what it, what it looks like, and seeking God's grace to mature. And so I, I want to frame this by giving you two contrasts to start with, sort of the, the foundational contrast with which we will think about ultimately the fear of the Lord. And it is a contrast between the greatness of God and the smallness of man and the goodness of God and the sinfulness of man. If we can, if we can sort of get a handle as much as we can in our limited minds and our finite ability, as much as we can get a handle on those contrasts, greatness of God and smallness of man, goodness of God and sinfulness of man, it will lead us to understand the fear of God. Apart from those things, we will not get the fear or reverence of God. So let's start on the first one, the greatness of God and the smallness of man. The old dinner time prayer that some of you may remember, God is great, God is good, let us thank him for our food. I'm not the only old guy here that remembers that, right? Okay, some others of you remember that, right? God is great and he is good. So let's, let's start on God's greatness. Let's underline his greatness by just thinking about God and thinking about some attributes of God, some, some descriptions of God in Scripture, and in particular, those that, that don't translate over to you and I. Theologians call them the incommunicable attributes of God. In other words, they, they are possessed by God. He possesses them perfectly, these attributes. We do not possess them at all. These are things that we, we just don't have and we can't have. We are human beings. And so uh, this distinction starts with this one. God is independent and we are dependent. God is entirely independent and we are dependent. Think back to Moses standing before the burning bush. And, and God has 
sent Moses, commissioned Moses to go to Egypt, to the slaves, to the Hebrews who are enslaved there. And Moses is thinking to himself, how am I going to do this? On what authority am I going to do this? What name do I give them when I go there for you, God? How do I, how do I describe you in some way so that they then respect this authority and believe that this is from you? And God gives that answer in Exodus 3.14. I am who I am. Say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. Seems like an odd name at one level, but it is a description of God as being the only self-existent being. God stands alone. He is fully independent. He is self-existent. He's not relying on anyone. There was, there was no one before God because there was no before before God. No one made God. God has simply been. He is God. He is independent. Stephen Hawking, the renowned physicist and atheist who died back in March, argued, of course, that the creation, the universe, came into existence through a big bang. And when you believe that, then the, the question becomes, well, what precipitated the big bang? And so he was asked that in an interview not long before he died. The question was, what was around before the big bang? And he answered, quote, nothing was around before the big, big bang. And then he went off for about a minute or so on real time and imaginary time and gravity and energy and things that had my head spinning for that minute. And then he came back and he said at the end, quote, there was nothing around before the Big Bang. The only difference, I think, between Stephen Hawking and a lot of his colleagues on this is the arrogance with which he would make that claim. The boldness to dismiss God that there is no designer, creator, instigator of all of this. There, there's nothing, and out of absolutely nothing, all of this just exploded into existence, and we have it. Most of these other scholars who deal with this are at least honest enough to admit that it's a dilemma to try to explain what preceded the Big Bang if you've taken God out of that equation. Psalm 90, verse 2, Moses answered this question of where it all came from before the mountains were brought forth or ever you had formed the earth and the world from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. He said, before anything, God was, God is. He is self-existent. He is independent. He does as he pleases. God has no need of our help, our worship, our obedience. Certainly, he calls us to worship and obedience, and it is our privilege to be able to offer that back. But God is not needy for that. There's not something lacking in his character that we have to fill for him. Who has called the generations from the beginning, God asks in Isaiah 41.4. I, the Lord, the first and with the last, I am he. The contrast between God and man is probably fairly obvious. God is independent, self-existent. We are dependent creatures. Not only are born entirely dependent and in need of help at birth, but we live as dependent creatures. We still need food and oxygen and water and shelter and sleep. You take away any one of those for varying lengths of time, and the result is we die because we are dependent on those things. God is independent. God is eternal. God is, as Moses said, as we read already, from everlasting to everlasting, you and I came into existence at a point in time. We are subject to time. God is transcendent over time. Now that you are here, your soul will live on forever, 
You will experience either eternal bliss in the presence of your creator if you are trusting in his son, Jesus Christ, or you will experience eternal suffering apart from your creator and, and be judged and condemned for your sin. You will live on from here however you were created at a point in time. God is the only one who is truly eternal. God is immutable. That means he never changes. We change all the time. We change thoughts. We, we grow in knowledge. We acquire knowledge. Then we get older and we forget that knowledge that we got because we continue to change. We age physically. Our ideas change. Our vitality changes. All, we, we are in a constant state of change. God does not change. Psalm 102 describes the human body, how it wears out, and the creation, how it deteriorates, and, and how it will all pass away. And then the psalmist writes about God. He says, you are the same, and your years have no end. We stake our hope on this. The fact that God is immutable is what gives us the hope to rest entirely in the gospel of Jesus Christ and to believe that the God who promised a plan of redemption that began in eternity past, that that plan of redemption will not change one day and God say like our culture does all the time, well, maybe there's a different way to do this. Maybe we have to upgrade this. Maybe we have to find another version. God does not change. His steadfast love and his faithfulness are described as enduring throughout Scripture. They do not change. They don't lessen. When God makes a covenant, he keeps it. He promises it, and he keeps his word. Think just, past, just this past week. How many times did you not entirely keep your word about something? Did you fall short of what you intended to do or what you stated you would do or what you thought you would do? God keeps his word. Psalm 33, 11 says, the counsel of the Lord stands forever. In other words, God's plans and purposes and wisdom are not altered because he had to rethink things. It's not like we see when our courts make rulings and say, well, this might have meant that 200 years ago, but now it means this. We're rethinking this. God doesn't have to face a set of circumstances and go, well, this is different. We're going to have to, we're going to, have to retool things at this point. God is the same, and his plans and his purposes stand. They are unchanged. All of us can think of moments this past week when our plans changed, when something that we wanted to do, we couldn't do. We got out on 95, and it changed all of our plans for that day. God's plans don't change. He is immutable. We change all the time. God is omnipotent. He is all-powerful, and we are not. One example of this, he tells Abraham and Sarah that in their old age, you are going to have a son. He will be an heir. You will have many descendants as a result. And we know that Sarah, when she heard that, laughed rather sarcastically that, that how, how is that even possible? In Genesis 18, 14, God rebukes her and says, is anything too hard for the Lord? Is, is anything too hard for an omnipotent God whose plans and purposes will stand? We've already seen that because he's immutable. And so he can do what he says as well. He has the power to accomplish it. Isaiah 55, 11, God said, my word that goes forth from my mouth shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. God speaks and it happens. God spoke creation into existence. When God speaks, it is effective. The result happens. 
you and I know that we are not that way. We are not omnipotent. Our word does not accomplish what, what we always intend for it. All you have to do is be a parent for a, a short bit of time to know that you are not om- omnipotent. Don't do that. Please don't do that. No, really, don't do that. The, the omnipotence is long gone. It proceeds from our mouth, and it is rapidly ignored. God is omnipotent. We are not. We say things with some hope, maybe, but certainly not with certainty. God is omniscient. His knowledge is without limitation. God knows your heart and mine in intricate detail. Not only the the physical organ, but the whole inner man that Scripture means when it describes the heart as being our thoughts and affections and will, all of the things that drive us from within. God knows those things. He knows your thoughts and plans. He knows your future. He knows the span of your lifetime. He knows the date on your headstone because God is omniscient. All of this knowledge belongs to him. You and I don't know what will happen in the next moment. Our hearts could stop beating in the next second, and we would be clueless just prior to that. There was a story in the news this week of a candidate for governor in Maryland who went to the candidate's forum on Wednesday night and and gave his case and went home and woke up at 2 o'clock in the morning not feeling well and was dead in an hour of a heart attack. It's a reminder again that calamity can come at any moment and we can be entirely unprepared for it because we are not omniscient. Lots of other qualities we could use in this contrast between the greatness of God and the smallness of man. God is omnipresent. He is he's transcendent over all of creation, and yet by virtue of his Holy Spirit, he is present here with us. In fact, he is in you if you are trusting in Jesus Christ. He is in this body of believers. He is over and above, and yet he is here. You and I can be in one place at one time, and that's it. Because we're limited in that way. There are attributes of God that we can possess in a form, communicable attributes they're called, but even then God possesses them perfectly. We possess them at at best weakly. Love, justice, holiness. Yes, we can love, we can understand justice, we can understand holiness. God possesses those things perfectly. Perfect in love and justice and holiness. You and I are are, are weak imitations at best. Our love is conditional toward other people. Our justice is often circumstantial. Our holiness depends on the walk that day. All of these things that, that point to the fact that we are living this fleeting existence here, as Ecclesiastes would say, in life under the sun. All of these things together picture this mighty, glorious, great, all-powerful, self-existent, independent, glorious God. And we are weak, and we are frail, and our lives are fleeting. The greatness of God and the smallness of man. That contrast in and of itself, if we just had an overall being who was master, who was Self-existent, independent, omniscient, omnipotent, all the different things we've talked about that are incommunicable. If just those qualities existed, there's the possibility that we could be in a dreadful situation where this master could be very capricious about what he does. He could, he could decide on a whim what he wants to do with his creation. And like puppets on a string, we could, we could get pulled this way and that way by this all-powerful being. It is the other contrast that we need to keep in mind, and that is the goodness of God 
and the sinfulness of man. God is good. Not only is he all-powerful and omniscient and self-existent, he is a good God. Psalm 106 and 107 both begin with, Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His steadfast love endures forever. God is good. James reminds his readers of that in James chapter 1. Every good gift and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. That's reminding us that not only is God good and pours out blessings on us, but it is his goodness is part of his unchanging character. And so he is always good. We can always rest in the goodness of God. We can always trust that he is at work for good in us. That's the promise of Romans 8 that we hold on to, that all things do work together for good. God is at work for our good and for conforming us to the image of his son in all circumstances. He is at work to accomplish that in us. Even when we struggle to see the good in our circumstances, we can rest in a God whose love for us is enduring, whose faithfulness is assured. The goodness of God is evident in his sinlessness, in his holiness. The very word for for holy is the idea of separate, the fact that God is distinct from sin. After God rescued the Jewish people from out of Egypt, Moses sang a song of praise in Exodus 15. And in that, he says, Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? God, majestic in holiness. So different. All of the nations that Moses could see around all worship these idols and these false gods. And, And Moses said, There's none like you glorious above all else, and majestic in your holiness. God, in his goodness, loves you, leads you, shepherds you, cares for you, is always with you and never forsakes you. He is faithful to you. He keeps his promises to you. He sacrificed his beloved son for you while we were enemies of his. He walks with you even in the valley of the shadow of death. He restores you, strengthens you. He is making, preparing a place for you in heaven, and one day he will take you to be in his presence for the rest of eternity. Praise God. He does not change, and he is good. Psalm 145.9 says, The Lord is good to all, and his mercy is over all that he has made. Even to the unbeliever, God gives the common grace of the rain that's falling, and of the sunshine, and of the the place where we live that we we can inhabit and exist. Even that is demonstrations of God's goodness and his care for man. As for us... Goodness is not an innate quality. Rather, sinfulness is. We are born as sinners opposed to God. Despite his greatness and all that he has done and provided and his goodness and his kindness toward us, we come into life as hostile enemies of his, as opposed to him, mainly because we want to be our own gods. We don't want him to tell us what to do. We, we want that, that independence. We want to believe that somehow we are powerful and in charge. And so we come in as hostile to him. And yet God, in his goodness, sent his son to die in our place and to ransom us through his gospel. The greatness of God and the smallness of man. The goodness of God and the sinfulness of man. 
So I've, I've, I've kind of done that sort of brief run through on what we might call theology proper, a, a look at who God is, just a, a, a thumbnail on that. Because that, friends, is the foundation of the fear of the Lord. That's how we learn the fear of the Lord. It is by coming and growing in the knowledge of God. It is by seeing who he is and seeing us as compared to him and realizing our place in comparison to him and being in awe of who he is and being struck by his greatness and his goodness. If we are to understand the fear of the Lord, we must meditate on the things of God and who he is because it's only as we begin to contemplate him and his transcendence and his majesty and his holiness, it's only then that Proverbs 31.30 makes sense, the fear of the Lord. That is to be praised. If you, if you refuse God, there, there's really two kinds of fear of God. If you refuse God, if you reject his gospel, if you ignore what God says, and you have no interest in the sacrifice of his son Jesus Christ in your place, then Scripture is very clear that one day you will fear God. You may not think you do now, but one day you will tremble in the presence of the eternal judge and creator of the universe. That same song that Moses gave of, of deliverance, of how God, majestic and glorious and holy, delivers his people, also pointed out in Exodus 15, in the greatness of your majesty, you overthrow your adversaries. You send out your fury. It consumes them like stubble. Moses is speaking what he had just witnessed. God, in his judgment on the Egyptians as they followed the Hebrews, are drowned in that sea, and it is just a, a lesson again to Moses that there is a, a fearful expectation of judgment for those who reject Jesus Christ for those who do not fear God in this life. Psalm 2 describes men who scheme against God, men who believe that they are powerful, that they are self-directed, that they have the authority to do what they want. And Psalm 2 verse 4 says this of God, he, he who sits in the heavens laughs, the Lord holds them in derision, then he will speak to them in his wrath, terrify them in his fury. There will be a trembling before God for those that reject Jesus Christ. Hebrews 10 is also clear. It warns of a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume his adversaries. Those who reject the goodness of God and trample on the sacrifice of Jesus Christ are warned in Hebrews 10 that it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. There will be fear. For those of us who are trusting in Jesus Christ, who have come to believe that Jesus Christ came and stood in our place and died on the cross and rose again to give us life. For we who are trusting in him and have been adopted by God through Jesus, who have life through the name of Jesus Christ, who lay claim to that gospel, even though we can't fully fathom the goodness and greatness of God, those contrasts between his greatness and our smallness and his goodness and our sinfulness, those contrasts have been overcome by God's mercy at the cross so that we now are able to look to the God of the universe and call him Father. We are able to know him, to be in a relationship with him, to have been rescued by him and to be loved by him. We are beloved and adopted and will spend eternity with the Lord. And it is that awestruck understanding of who he is and what he's done and how he's come to a, 
of people like us and redeemed us and saved us out of his enduring and steadfast love that stands behind Proverbs 31.30 and the fear of the Lord. It's not the trembling fear of judgment. It is the fear that recognizes that this is our great God. This is the transcendent one, the creator, the one who is majestic, the one who is above all. It is a fear that stands in awe of God's self-existence, immutability, power, knowledge, and omnipresence. It is a posture of reverence as we, mand- as we meditate on his perfect holiness and goodness. It is a falling to our knees and worshiping at the glorious majesty of a king who would draw his subjects to himself and would love them. It is an amazement at that love that God would sacrifice his beloved son and then with that love in mercy reach out to us and save us from our sin and rebellion. Our fear of the Lord is central to our worship. And our worship ultimately is rooted in meditating on truth, rooted in meditating on the perfections of God, spending time in Scripture, simply meditating on who God is, how he is described, how we see David crying out to him. Time and again, in whatever the circumstance, when David had seen victory in battle or David was fearing for his life, time and again we see David crying out, glorious God, majestic God, just speaking about God's attributes. Because God didn't change, whether victory or or defeat or threat, God was the same. And so he worshiped God and he meditated on who God was and his attributes. Jerry Bridges, in his excellent book, The Joy of Fearing God, and I've noted it there in the the notes in in your bulletin, I would encourage you if you want to read more on this, it's a wonderful read, made a point about something very interesting and very similar from two very different accounts. The account of Jacob in Genesis 28, after he had encountered God in a dream, and Peter in Luke 5, after he had encountered Jesus on the shore of the lake, when Jesus said, Go ahead and throw the net out again, and suddenly it was filled with fish in a way that Peter could not believe. So Jacob has this dream. Peter has this encounter with Jesus. And Genesis 28, 16 says, Jacob awoke after the dream and said, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. And he was afraid and said, How awesome is this place. Okay, so note Jacob's reaction. He is just in awe. God is in this place, and he was afraid. Luke 5 says that, Peter saw Jesus do something that only God could do, either herd all of the fish in the lake into this one spot so they could all be in Peter's net or create fish right there on the spot for Peter. Peter knew at that moment he had seen something that no one could replicate unless it was God. And so Luke 5, it says, he fell down at Jesus' knees saying, depart from me for I am a sinful man, O Lord. And Jesus answers him and says, do not be afraid. Here's the point that Bridges makes about both of these encounters. In the dream to Jacob, God did not confront Jacob about his deceptiveness. If you've known anything about the life of Jacob, you know that he had a way of of not always walking the straight and narrow, we might say. God doesn't come to Jacob and, and, and admonish him about his sin. He didn't warn Jacob of punishment. That dream is God giving promises to Jacob of a land and an inheritance, and he's promising Jacob, I will abide with you, I will remain with you. It is really a a celebratory dream in the sense of if you're the recipient of that, it is God saying, I'm with you, Jacob. 
I'm going to bless you, Jacob. Peter, as well, Jesus doesn't bring up the topic of sin at that moment with Peter. He's not talking about judgment and saying, Peter, get this right. No, he's encouraging. He's, he's blessing Peter out of this bounty he is providing for Peter. It's all good. And yet in both instances, what is the response of both men? They're overcome with fear. There's been nothing about sin or judgment. It is merely realizing they are in the presence of God that stops them where they are and puts them to their knees and causes Jacob to say, this, this is an awesome place. God is here. And, and Peter to say, depart from me, Lord. I'm a sinner because there is an awareness of the greatness and goodness of God who is now standing there before them. Bridges writes, it was the reaction of the creature to the creator. It was the profound awe of recognizing the vast difference between himself and the infinite, eternal God. A woman who fears the Lord is one who knows that the most important thing she can do for her family is to grow in the knowledge of the one in whom she rests her life. Meditating on him, thinking about who God is, considering his character and his promises, nurturing a big view of a great and good God as one who is mighty and wise and awesome and loving and protecting and redeeming so that she can trust in him, knowing that whatever circumstances come to her family, that ultimately he is her resting place. He is her sovereign. He is the one that can redeem whatever comes upon that home, whatever is at work in the midst of her life of her husband or her children. To fear God is to know with certainty that he is great and he is good. And a woman who fears the Lord knows that her relationship with her creator and savior ultimately must be paramount over every other relationship, including that of her marriage and her parenting as a mom. That ultimately it is resting in him, finding hope in him, finding security and peace in him. We as husbands fail. We are frail. Our children fail. You put your hope in any of them, you're in trouble. Your hope must be in God first and foremost. If you, if you struggle to fear him, to hold him in awe and reverence, then, then here's what I would just urge you to do, is to just go back to Scripture and look at who your God is. Know how great he is. See how big he is. Wonder about how majestic he is. Think on how holy he is and allow that to permeate your thoughts. Allow that to drive your responses. In this age of, of information overload, we can become so preoccupied with the trivial and mundane. Whatever's the latest on our smartphone, whatever the latest text is or whatever it is, can just drive us off into other things. And, and yet, Scripture consistently pushes us to pursue the knowledge of God, to know him and know him better. And then fear him as a result. Be in awe of him. Revere him. I'll end with a quote from Charles Spurgeon. This was from 1855. Spurgeon said, The highest science, the loftiest speculation, the mightiest philosophy which can ever engage the attention of a child of God is the name, the nature, the person, the work, the doings, and the existence of the great God whom he calls his father.
That is our path to fearing God, and a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. Would you pray with me? Lord, we have pondered just a short time this morning again, just a little of what Scripture says about you, how you have revealed yourself to us, how you have shown yourself to be our creator and sustainer, to be the one who loves us, is faithful to us, and keeps promises, who redeems us, who rescues our lives, who is ultimately Lord and Master. Lord, work within our hearts to think on these truths as we start into a new week, to reflect on who you are, to be in awe of the fact that you are not just some being somewhere out there in eternity, but you are the God who loves us as children. You are the one who sent your son to shepherd us and to come alongside us. You are the one who's put your spirit within us. Lord, I pray this morning that if there's anyone here who is not trusting in Jesus Christ as Savior, Lord, might today be the day when you would bring them, draw them to yourself, that today they would, having seen these truths in Scripture, would be compelled to see your greatness and see in the gospel the hope of salvation, to see a rescue of Jesus Christ giving his life to take the judgment that's rightly deserved for sin and to offer in its place life and forgiveness. Lord, may your children here, myself and my brothers and sisters here, Lord, as we begin a new week and the things that tempt us toward fear, that produce anxiety in our hearts, the things that unsettle us so easily, Lord, over and above all of those things, help us to see you. Help us to see you as the holy sovereign, as the ruler, as the one who is sustaining us, as the one who is never changing. And so we can come to you in the name of Jesus Christ, knowing that he is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And that if we have staked our hope in him, that we have an anchor for the soul, Lord, thank you for that. Thank you for the confidence that we can have in you, that you are unshakable and enduring. Lord, help us to, to meditate on you this week, to grow in our understanding of the fear of the Lord. Thank you that it is not the terrifying fear of judgment for those who are trusting in Christ, but the glorious, awesome reverence of a mighty God who is above his people and yet right here with us. It's in Jesus' great name we pray these things. Amen.